Good morning, everyone. Um, last week, we finished a series of conversations, uh, which we called The Generous Life, and we talked about generosity for a number of weeks. And next week is, believe it or not, next week is the first Sunday of Advent, the season in which we celebrate and think about and prepare for our big celebration of the birth of Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's coming up to Christmas time. Uh, this week is going to be Thanksgiving, and I know a lot of us will be celebrating Thanksgiving in different places in different ways. So today we're going to do a uh, one-time sermon um, in which I get to tease for all of us uh, a series of conversations that we're going to be having after the first of the year. If this is the first time you'll hear about it, you'll be hearing about it more in January. You know, it feels like our country is coming apart at the seams over the last few years. I had someone tell me just the other day that there was a recent political rally, and after that political rally, the, uh, the phrase that was trending number one on Twitter was civil war. During the 2020 election, it won't surprise you, uh, Gallup did a, a poll, and you know, they, they offer voters five different choices, and an alarming and by far the largest number ever since they've been doing this poll said that 89% uh, of Trump supporters thought the election of Joe Biden would lead to lasting harm, lasting harm in America. 89%. That was the worst option available to them. By the way, 90% of Biden supporters believed that about President Trump. 77% of Americans polled believe we are more divided now than we were before the pandemic. The only hope for our country is for the people of God to be the people of God. I don't believe the answer is education. I don't believe the answer is legislation. I don't believe the answer is regulation. The only hope for our country is for the people of God to be the people of God. God has always designed his people to be leaven for the bread of society, to be salt for the food on the culture's table. Our, the only hope for our country is for us to be who God has called us to be. So how do we here at Gateway do our part of that? How do we here at Gateway move in the direction of us? Because we're only responsible for us. How do we be the people of God. On May 25th of last year, you'll remember George Floyd was killed while in police custody. And that next Sunday, I came here and talked about the need. Actually, we were online at that point. We were all remote, so I, on camera. I talked about the need for us to talk, to be honest and to be real about our stories with one another, to try to create a different space here without the noise and clutter that fills the airwaves around us. And I believed then, as I believe now, the only real hope for our culture, for our society, was for the people of God to be the people of God. And I believed then, as I do now, that I, that, that work begins with us hearing one another's heart. Now, at the time we were in quarantine, and, and I said then that we would talk as soon as we could get together in person because I don't believe this conversation is one that we could have over Zoom. So the time has 
almost come for that conversation. I'll tell you more about how this is going to happen at the end of our time today, but I want first, uh, I want first of all to talk about what's at stake in these conversations because I want to convince us to step in and to sign up. We're going to begin with some Bible study. So hang on, we're going to dive in a little bit deep. For some of us, this will get a little technical, maybe a little boring, but stay with me. It's good stuff and it's God's Word. And then we'll, uh, we'll get to our conversation at the end. So let, let, me, let me, before we dive in, let me, let me kick us off with a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to what you have to say to us. I mean, uh, I'm thinking now, Lord, of that hymn that uh, I used to hear when I was a kid, we need thee every hour, especially this hour. So break open our chests and massage what you have for us in, into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to look today at a section from Galatians chapter 3. Most of it, but not all of it, will be on the screen for you or on your screen at home if you're watching. But I would love if you have a Bible to open to Galatians chapter 3. You'll be able to see more of it. You can go to your phone and pull up a Bible app. Or if you go to mygateway.life on your phone, there's a sermon card. And the scripture will be there for you, most of it. Not all of it. So it would be better if you have a Bible or even if you go to your Bible app. Galatians chapter 3. And in this passage, Paul is arguing. So let me be frank up front. Paul is arguing against a 2,000-year-old controversy that we don't even face anymore. But the principle he establishes is very, very important to how we approach God. Hang on to that. And the way he applies this principle is very applicable to our conversation with one another. So first of all, Galatia. This was written to the church in Galatia. So let me tell you a word about Galatia. Galatia was a Roman province, and this is important. It was a Roman province created, essentially, or annexed by Caesar Augustus in 25 BC. So that's, you know, roughly a little over 50 years before Jesus died. After Augustus annexed it, Rome initiated an extensive development project there. They built stadiums and roads. They built whole cities. And then they populated those cities with retired uh, Roman soldiers. So look at this map, if you would. And uh, if you look just below the Black Sea to what is modern-day Turkey, that is the area of Galatia. And the, the, what became very large and established Roman cities are not really listed on this map yet. So all of that to say, this was decidedly Roman territory. This is not Jerusalem. This is not the traditional territory of the Jews. Now, the fact that Paul wrote this letter to this location means that there was a group of Christians in Galatia, right? That means that the story of Jesus, don't miss this, the story of Jesus, of his life, of his ministry, of his death, and of his resurrection had obviously jumped way out of its Jewish confines. We are not in Kansas anymore. And there was a tension in that. There were still many teachers and leaders of the Jesus movement who believed that this was a Jewish movement. In fact, they believed Jesus' life was the culmination of Judaism. Here's what I mean. While Jesus was alive, there were those who imagined the Messiah was going to come 
establish an army, overthrow Rome, and reestablish the nation of Israel in its prominence in the world. Then after his death and resurrection, there were those who still believed this was the ultimate plan. Obviously, if that's what you believe, then for, for someone to become part of the movement, you had to become a good Jew. Back up a second. Let me give you an analogy. I'm, an analogy. I want you to imagine the movement of God. So think of God loving people and God calling people and God working in people's lives and God moving in history. So imagine the movement of God as a, as a stream. And obviously outside of that stream, there, there's, you know, there's a large lake and a, even a sea and a, a little river and, and, and rivulets and, and small puddles. In other words, people in their own thing trying to find nourishment wherever they can. But if you were a little drop of water and you wanted to be part of the movement of God, you had to make your way to this stream, the stream of God's movement. He's not over here. He's not in the sea. He's not in the lake. He's not in the puddles. He's here moving through history, this stream. Where does that movement begin? Where did the stream of God's movement start? What was the starting point for the stream of God's activity on the earth? Well, there were those who believed that the starting point for God's movement, in earnest, it was with Moses, with the 12 tribes who would become the nation of Israel, and with God's revelation of the law. God has always been moving. But, but the stream fully formed and, and, and uh, uh, official God's movement, God's activity. Many who believe that it began with Moses and with the revelation of the law. For those people, the law was God's revelation of his character and his standards, and they were right. And they believed obedience to the law was the way you built a relationship with God. Remember that. Practicing the religion laid out in the law was the means by which your sins were forgiven and by which you were made right with God. This is what many Jews believed. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, disagreed. Now, all of this may seem weird and like super impractical minutia. You know, uh, mental debris. But Paul thought this was of epic concern. And answering this concern was the main driver for the letter to the Galatians, especially the section we're looking at today. So as you hear this passage, and we're going to get to it right now, as you hear this passage, I want you to have a question in your mind. Don't forget this question. Hang it over like a framework over the passage we're going to look at this morning. How does the law help us in our efforts to relate to God? Or how does it help us know God? How does the law rescue us from our sin and our guilt? How does the law help us spiritually? Now, earlier in chapter 3, Paul had begun to argue that observing the law was an unreliable way of connecting with God. It doesn't work. We could never live up to the law's standards. In fact, it was never designed to work as a means of helping us connect to God. Listen to this. Verse 10 and 11, this is not on the screen, but this is chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 10 and the first part of verse 11. All who rely on observing the law 
are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Everything. You got to do it all. It's not just being better than your neighbor, you got to do it all. Clearly, he goes on in verse 11 no one is justified, no one is made right, no one is fully connected, no one is clean. No one is justified before God by the law. Here's the fascinating part. Paul argued that there was something prior to the law that was always the basis of a true relationship with God. There was something that came before the law that was always the basis for a right relationship with God. Well, what is it that was prior to the law? I know this is technical, but stay with me. This is going to apply to our conversation together. In this passage, he calls it, Paul calls it, promise or the promise. Specifically, the promises made to Abraham. That was prior to the law, and that formed the foundation of how one really connects with God That was the beginning of the stream, if you will. What he calls promises here is almost the same as what he means by grace in other places. In fact, the emphasis here is placed on, in this passage and in in his argument in Romans, the emphasis is placed on Abraham's lack of doing anything. All he did was say yes. He believed. All he does is believe. Essentially, Abraham says, okay, God, I accept your gift. This is where the movement of God begins. This is how we connect to God. It began with Abraham. It began, in other words, with faith. So now, verses 15 through 18, and this is where we're going to spend our time today. You're thinking, good grief, haven't we already spent our time? We'll go quickly, but we're we're going a long way. We're digging a really big hole to lay a, a very secure foundation to make one really important point. Stay with me. Uh, Verses 15 through 18. I won't read the whole section. I'll just do it a verse at a time. Verse 15. Uh, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant. He's talking about the promises made to Abraham, God's agreement with Abraham versus God's agreement that he made with Moses and with the people of Israel, the whole law. Uh, Let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. So he's talking about God's covenant here. That's his official agreement with Abraham. He compares it to human covenants, and he makes the point that covenants, once established, cannot be changed or broken. And over the years, critics of Paul have noticed a problem with this. I mean, we change official agreements all the time, and so did the Greeks and Romans. So what are you talking about, Paul? (laughs) You know, you've tried a little too hard to make a point here, Paul, and and it just doesn't work. But in recent years, scholars have discovered that Jews had a practice related to inheritance law, specifically called the Matanat Beri, by which a person could make an irrevocable testament to another person before their death. And I think Paul had this kind of agreement in mind. So even in the case of human beings... We can make irrevocable agreements with one another, even more so with God. And that's what God did with Abraham. He made an unchangeable agreement with Abraham with unchangeable promises. Verse 16. 
The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. I'm pausing for dramatic effect. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person. Who is Christ? And if you're the kind of person who underlines things in your Bible, underline that phrase. Now, this is a clever observation, and it has profound implications. Do you see the point here? The point is that Jesus was always the point. If you're familiar with this story, then you'll remember that God appeared to Abraham and he promised him that one, a great people would come from him, and that two, they would have a great home, and that three, they would be a blessing to the whole world. And buried in that agreement with Abraham was an allusion to Jesus. I mean, Paul seems to be arguing that this stream of God's activity, the stream that began with the faith of Abraham, the movement of God, it really began with Jesus, even from the beginning. Verse 17 and 18. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So, God's people became God's people because of God's promise, not because of their obedience to the law. And here's how this dusty old controversy begins to apply to us. If you've you've zoned out, don't zone out here. The key was not ever religious observance. The key was not ever doing good things. The key was believing the promise of God. That's the root of right connecting to God. Verse 19. Okay, well what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. Now let's pause there. Look, Paul's own teaching has led to this question, hasn't it? He knows this question is in the listeners' minds because he's kind of put it there. He seems to have so minimized God's law that why did it even happen? By way of review, the law did not win you over Galatians. You believed and received the Holy Spirit just like Abraham. Plus, the law doesn't justify, it doesn't make anybody right before God. Plus, it can't deal with your sin and guilt. No, Galatians, you have to choose. It's either law or promise. It's either works or faith. It's either earning your way to God or it's grace. So why the law? What's the purpose? What purpose does the law serve? And Paul says, it was added because of transgressions. Say what? Well, what does that mean? And he makes the same point a little more fully in Romans 5.20. Listen to this. The law was added, he says in Romans, so that trespass might increase. In other words, stay with me, the law made things worse. By revealing God's standards clearly, God shut the door on excuses. He made it absolutely clear just how far we are from having the kind of character that deserves to have God's love. He continues in this verse, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Right? So Paul is basically telling us, 
about the inferiority of the law. It was only temporary. It was only in place until the seed came, until Jesus came. And he goes on to tell us it was mediated by human being, a human being, and it was overseen by angels. Again, he's just demonstrating the inferiority of the law versus the promise. And I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, doesn't represent just one party, but God is one. So, How does the law help us in our effort to relate to God? How does it help us know God better? How does the law rescue us from our sin and our guilt? It doesn't. That brings us to verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? And what we expect here, given the argument that Paul has made, is we expect Paul to reject the law outright, and he does not. He says in the strongest possible terms, Absolutely not. Paul doesn't discard the law. In fact, he affirms it, but not in the way it had been understood for centuries. In a very real sense, the law does help us because it leads us to Christ. But not by weaning us from our sins. No, instead, it reveals our sins to us clearly and even causes them to be multiplied and increased to the point where we stand before God utterly void of any hope of self-salvation, any hope of self-reclamation. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that, and the law made that clear, so that what was promised, being given through faith in, Christ, in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Look, this is why people join 12-step groups. This is why people go, end up going to marriage counseling or other kinds of counseling. They're saying, I've done the best I can, and it's gotten me here. I can't stop this. I need help. And that's a rough place to be, by the way, but it's a very good place. This is the place the law drives us. I need help. In fact, I need need rescue. I need a savior. I don't need an assistant. I don't need an educator. I need a savior. Can you see this this convicting, condemning, killing function of the law? It isn't an end in itself, but rather, as one commentary put it, this is, quote, the silent preparation for the revelation of faith, end quote. So what did all of this mean for the Galatians? Well, it meant that they should resist teachers who were telling them that the key was for them to become good Jews to get circumcised, to obey the whole law, to perform the sacrifices, to count their steps on the Sabbath. They should resist that kind of teaching. They should resist their own attempts to be very, very religious, to be good enough for God. It was contrary to the truth revealed through the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What they needed instead was faith in what God had done in Jesus. They needed not more effort, but more surrender. So what does this mean for us? 
today, 2,000 years later, exactly the same thing. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, Jesus was just not very religious? Well, this is what they meant. Our religious effort is not the key to our relationship with God. Our rescue from sin, our deep and real connection to God, our, our overcoming all that separates us and the dissonance in our lives depends not on our effort, but on His grace, on His offer, on His promise. We don't do religious stuff in order to make God love us. Don't miss this. It's exactly the opposite. We perform religious exercises because we love Him. And it just helps us know Him better and stay in touch with Him. But nothing we can do can earn His favor or take it away. Now verses 23 through 25. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. I mean, this is, this is so beautiful. I heard someone's testimony just this week talking about how they spent their early life, a very religious family, went to church, very faithful, and they did this. And, and working so hard to, to make my life work. And, and then they had this experience where they realized, uh, really, it was a beautiful testimony, overwhelming experience where they realized they were a sinner. <laughs> and it was a good thing. It was actually relief. And maybe for the first time, they leaned fully into Jesus. There's much to say here, but we'll move on. I think we get the gist of Paul's argument. And, and remember, in Paul's mind, this is epic. And I believe he was right. And so, beginning with verse 26 now, all of that's the setup. Beginning with verse 26, Paul begins to apply this great principle. Paul has been argued, arguing for the essence of how we connect to God. What, what the story of Jesus meant or to use the word of the New Testament, he's been arguing for the gospel, the good news. Nothing short of that. And now he begins to apply it in verse 26. And where does he begin? What's his first application point? For this great truth, well, let's see, verses 26 through 29. So you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. Can you see in this passage, Paul has argued for the essence of the gospel the essence of what Jesus' story means, the essence of how we relate to God, and his first application point is our unity. Our unity is a gospel issue. And that's epic. So, let's go back for a second to our stream analogy. Now that we are in Christ, we are swimming in the stream of God's movement. And that, God's movement, is what shapes us. That's what moves us. That's what defines us. And that's what defines us. 
God's movement. We are what the Apostle Peter called a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. There is no longer a Greek table and a Jew table. We are not defined by our economic status, not even in our own minds. We are not our gender. We belong to Christ. We are Abraham's seed. We inherit the promise that God made long ago, and we are one. This was Jesus' final prayer on the last night of his life for us. In John 17, on the last night of his life, Jesus prayed one thing, that we would be one. The only hope for our country is for the people of God to be the people of God. That's the only hope for the world. So let's, let's figure out how to be the people of God. All right, let me conclude. Now, Paul isn't saying that the distinctions he's listed here, male, female, Jew, Gentile, he's not saying that they've lost all their meaning and significance. Clearly, they haven't. They haven't for the Galatians, and they haven't for us. Factors like economics, race, gender, background, country of origin, these things impact our lives, sometimes greatly. And that's why we must talk. But they do not define us. And that's why we can talk, helpfully and helpfully. Our unity is a gospel issue. And it's interesting to me that Paul isn't done with the topic of the law yet. In chapter 5, verse 14, I want you to see this. He says this about the law. Go to the next slide. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's borrowing from Jesus there, summarizes the law. One other time, he revisits the topic of the law. Listen to this. This time in a way that's even more provocative. Chapter 6, verse 2, he says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. For those of you who are looking for law, if you want to know what religious thing you must earn to get God's favor, forget it. It can't be done. And all you can do, all you need to do is accept his love by recognizing what he's done in Christ, and by receiving him as the governor of your life. But we can't forget about the law altogether, can we? Specifically, we can't forget about the obligation to love one another and to carry one another's burdens. And that's why we need to talk. And we're going to do so this coming January. We're going to sign up and divide into small groups and have conversations about ourselves and tell our stories specifically as it relates to our history with mistreatment and prejudice and race, but not exclusively that. I'm telling you now so you can think about it and so you can sign up. We'll meet once a week, over three weeks in small groups telling our stories, and it's going to be awesome. All right, we're coming to the end. I want to try to convince you to join us. Okay, look. This part, I want you to put a different hat on. This part is mostly personal opinion, so be on your guard. Uh, feel free to disagree with me because I'm going to try to step on all of our toes. Let's consider very briefly, as a starting point, the issue of race in our country. I mean, it's a really complicated, difficult topic. Let's start with just the relationship between blacks and whites in America. This by itself is complicated with 400 years of awful history, and it's messy. So let me address those of you on the social and political left with this issue. If you don't know what I'm talking about, good. But if you're on the social and political left, let me address you. It seems like you believe everyone should get educated 
and wake up to cultural realities. That we need to really see ourselves in our culture as it is, to see how our system really works. I would encourage you to ask yourself toward what end. If you want this because you want us to be able to understand one another better, great. But if you want this because you think this will solve our problem, I believe you've bought into a myth. Education that leads to progressive legislation and regulation cannot solve this problem. This is a gospel issue. Our part has got to be acting consistently like God's people, living out the law of Christ. That's the hope of the world. It's not about being woke. It's about being holy. Now let me speak for a second to those of you on the right with this issue. Often your response to this conversation is, you're tired of hearing it. Don't blame everything on race. That's playing the victim. But why would that be so often your response? When your brothers and sisters are in pain, you're supposed to carry their burdens. That's the law of Christ. You're not tasked with criticizing their argument. That's the spirit of the Pharisees. You and I are burden carriers. Ah, you say, I'm not criticizing my brothers and sisters. I'm criticizing the mainstream media. And that's why you need to be in this conversation. You don't need to hear from the mainstream media. You need to hear from your brothers and sisters in Christ. How about those of you who have no stake in this? Maybe you're not white America and you're not black America. Well, you've got a story as well. You may have been mistreated or you may have mistreated others because of bias, because of racial prejudice in your country of origin. And you're also a burden carrier. You need this conversation, and we need you in it. So here's our homework. <laughs> How you doing? Uh, here's our homework. Join us for three weeks in January for a short series of conversations. We're going to tell our stories to one another. It will be safe, and it will help us build community with one another. It will help us be the people of God. And that's our calling. And we're going to start taking signups right now. It's on mygateway.life. I'll talk about this again in January. And believe it or not, I'm going to get even more pointed. <laughs> uh, and we're going to have fun together. Seriously. This is going to help us be community. Let me uh, close this in prayer. And then we're going to uh, grab some announcements before we go home. Let's pray. Lord, if there was anything here that was not of you, I ask that you dismiss it from our minds and our hearts. And Father, what, what is of you, I pray that it will stick to us, that you will break open our chests and massage your truth in our hearts. Lord, especially for anyone here or anyone listening now or later that has never really understood the gospel, that, that's preeminent here, and I pray that you would, would speak that in a way that we can understand it. That we would say yes to Jesus and to your governorship over our lives. And Father, for the rest of, the, of this, the, the, the other part of this, I pray that you will protect us and direct us and guide us and give us courage 
to step into this conversation as the body of Christ in our attempt to be the body of Christ. We pray that all in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen.